so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC podcast. This week, we'll join Russell Moore and a panel of leading evangelical thinkers as they discuss pro-life issues. I like to tell reporters who ask me about, you know, why are, why are you still doing the March for Life? Why is the pro-life movement still around? Well, we're still around because people who used to be pro-choice continue to make that transition after experiencing the lie in their own lives and seeing that abortion was not the freeing, easy answer that the pro-choice movement would have us believe. At the 2016 Evangelicals for Life conference, Russell Moore moderated a panel discussing the future of the pro-life movement. The panelists included Kelly Rosati, Jim Daly, Charmaine Yost, and Samuel Rodriguez. They give insight into the pro-life movement and offer suggestions for how we can move forward in a gospel-centered manner as we talk about the sanctity of human life. We hope you enjoy this timely message. Well, I'm very excited about this panel. In fact, it's been one of the things I've most looked forward to about this entire conference because of the leaders that are here with us today and able to offer their insights into the future of the pro-life movement. Uh, Speaking to some of those reasons of optimism that we've heard this morning about why it is that we will always, always speak out for the dignity of human life and why it is that there is good news coming on behalf of preborn children. So with me, you recognize them all. Dr. Russell Moore, the head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. Mr. Jim Daly, my boss, president of Focus on the Family. Dr. Shailene Yost, the head of Americans United for Life. We're so thankful to have you here as well. And Sam Rodriguez, the wonderful speaker you just heard from, who never ceases to get us going. Isn't that right? right. Yes, that's right. So Dr. Moore, I want to start with you. You are well known for talking about what it means as believers in Christ to be part of a prophetic minority. How do you think that plays out as it relates to the future of the pro-life movement? Well, I think it, it plays out because we recognize that our neighbors around us are not going to necessarily understand what we're talking about when we talk about the life issue or even understand us. And I think uh, we've seen that a little bit with the Planned Parenthood videos over the last part of last year. I heard from many people who were saying, well, now that these videos are out and people actually see what is going on behind closed doors, people's minds are going to be changed. This is going to create momentum and so forth. And what instead people saw is that um, there were many, many people, probably most people in American life who didn't like to look into this. Now, as, as Christians, we ought to understand that. 
I mean, Jesus tells us the light shines into the darkness, and, and naturally, outside of, of Christ, we hate the light and love the darkness. It's painful to encounter the light. So we need to recognize that and understand it, which means that we have to articulate what we believe, why we believe it, why we care about unborn children, and we have to be consistent with that. And so uh, I appreciate so much what Sam said about uh, when it comes to our lives as citizens, we can't be the people who believe in uh, to, who believe in life and then compromise when it comes to the personhood of unborn children. And I would argue, I would take that and go a step further. I think the same thing is true. We can't be the people who are, are rightly refusing to compromise on the life issue, and then we compromise, for instance, on the racial justice issue. So if we're created in the image of God, then that means that we cannot give with our name onto it the, the empowering of the killing of unborn children, and we cannot compromise with racial injustice and race baiting that is also contrary to the righteousness of God. Absolutely. Thank you. What I hear in that is leadership. And uh, as I turn to you, Jim, that's one of the things that I think is a hallmark of your time at Focus on the Family has been the tremendous leadership that you've given, not only to our organization, but really to evangelicals in the U.S. Talk about why you're so passionate about the sanctity of human life and how it relates to the family. Well, there's many reasons, and uh, let me first say I'm just appreciative of everybody on the panel. These I feel uh, kindred spirits as we uh, move through the culture together. You know, I envision heaven. This is probably not theologically sound, <laughs> but I envision heaven, you know, each generation sitting around this great bonfire, and the Lord kind of saddles up and says, what did you guys get done for me? And hopefully we'll have a, a good account for the time that he's given us here. And I am so proud, even though I'm a little older, but, um, you know, to be living right now, because I think you're seeing tremendous transition. And I think an authenticity in that transition to seek truth, even if it points back to our own hearts to say, are we balancing these things adequately and honestly? Um, and I, I'm excited because I think everybody up here and many more of us have a desire and an appetite to be honest. Hmm. And we need that in Christian leadership. The other, the other aspect of that leadership, Kelly, um, you know what? I'm a football fan. I played football. I love football. How many Bronco fans are in the room? Redskins, <laughs> Redskins. Oh, red well, on, I know there's Redskins fans, but you're, you're not in the race. <laughs> the, point, the point I've... No observed, offense, Charmaine. <laughs> I've uncorked the genie now. Authenticity. The point that I have observed, though, is that the commentators on football always talk about the defense getting tired. You never talk about the offense getting tired. I played quarterback. It's fun to go score points against those guys. You're running up and down the field. You're excited. But the commentators always talk about the defense being tired. You know what? I'm sick and tired of playing defense. We have the best news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got, we should have smiles on our faces. We're saved because of what Jesus has done for us. What a great platform to play offense. When you're on the, the one-yard line, Constantly playing defense, trying to not let them score another touchdown, you get tired. And I think in the evangelical community particularly, we've been playing on the one-yard line defense for many years. Let's play some offense. That's what I love about what David's done with the, the videos, what many people in the movement now are doing to say, hey, 
we've got great news. Let's find some ways to continue to reduce the number of abortions. Let's find ways to get more people adopted. Let's find, you know, we have many tools at our disposal. And the biggest one is the culture is moving with us. A recent report the other day. 81% of people in this country believe abortion should be restricted in some way. That's a starting point. 81%. 60% of people in this country said that abortion is morally wrong. Momentum is on our side. Now let's not make it more complicated by being ugly. Very good. Let's use the love of Christ to keep that momentum going, to work on behalf of the women and men that are in this difficulty, and hopefully save that child and allow that child to have life. Amen to that. Speaking of being on offense, that's the perfect segue to Charmaine. You and your organization at AUL have done such a terrific job advancing the ball down the field on the issue of abortion restriction that Jim just mentioned. Would you talk a little bit more? I know you did some this morning, but just expand on what you see for the future continuing with those state legislative successes. Well, thanks for that, Kelly, because I certainly don't want to disagree with you, Jim, but I do feel like there has been an under-the-radar offense that has been very aggressive, and we've been able to be very strategic in how we've been pursuing an agenda that... um, I think of it as kind of, it's a stealth agenda of we're going to do things that we can do that are right in front of us. A lot of times people, people get frustrated because they, they want to see, they want to see a big change. And yet we're able to affect big change by moving into the ground that's right in front of us. And part of what I was wanting to set up this morning with my talk where I, fleshed out a little bit of the the legal strategy of talking about women and how women are um, targeted by an abortion industry that makes money on their pain is it's very important for us as we're moving forward as a pro-life movement to have a mother-child strategy of putting those two two people who are at risk in an abortion clinic together and understanding that their destiny and their hope and their future is bound up together. And so we can do that even legislatively because women really are being destroyed in abortion clinics along with their babies. And we know this as a movement. We know this because our ranks have been refreshed throughout the years by women who are post-abortive and men um, who have been, um, who've been hurt through their experience with abortion. I like to tell reporters who ask me about, you know, why are, why are you still doing the March for Life? Why is the pro-life movement still around? Well, we're still around because people who used to be pro-choice continue to make that transition after experiencing the lie in their own lives and seeing that abortion was not the freeing, easy answer that the pro-choice movement would have us believe. They're experiencing that grief and that regret um, in their own lives and they're coming over to the pro-life movement and saying, I have a message to give to other people. And that's the dynamism of what we have to say is that we have a better answer. And so by the fact that through God's grace, we are able to turn to people who have experienced abortion and say, there is an answer. There's a better way. There is hope for you. There is redemption. We're able to have a very inclusive movement, much more so than the other side. And they're scared of that. They're very scared of that. 
There are two things that um, I'm drawn to from what you said that I love, and that I love being part of this movement with all of you, with all the folks here, and that is just the fact that we are undergirded by the Imago Dei, by the truth of the scripture that every human being is made in the image of God and that he loves every one of us. And so our concern is not only for the child, but is for that child's mom and for all the other family members as well. I love that about what you said. And then raising the issue of those who have gone through the difficulty of abortion. I am so thankful, Jim, back to what you said for the good news of Jesus. And may we never, ever forget to remind people, no matter what they have been involved in, uh, including abortion, that forgiveness and mercy and grace are available through the cross of Christ. And it's that cross that brings me right next to Pastor Sam, who loves uh, to emphasize for all of our sakes, the cross of Jesus and the Lamb's agenda. Talk about, you just did, and we were fired up, but expand a little bit about what you see for the future in the Lamb's agenda. I see a a multi-ethnic pro-life movement that is compassionate, that reconciles conviction with compassion. And I say this respectfully, with great due deference. Growing up as a child of the 80s, I saw, committed to life, but I saw a monolithic sort of pro-life advocacy constituency that was angry. And I see a multi-ethnic, loving, grace-filled, Christ-centered, Bible-based movement really committed to both the child and the mother and the father and those impacted in a way that is so redemptive and loving, but it impacts. My children are, you know, some of them are in their early 20s, and I have a daughter, Lauren, who's 19 years of age. She is so staunchly pro-life, not because daddy somehow, you know, you know, indoctrinated her in his ideology, but she understood. She has great maturity, what, what it, the implications of abortion but her, her outlook is so full of love and grace, and she has ministered to young ladies who have unfortunately taken the decision of having an abortion. It is that sort of movement that I see emerging. And I think it's just so powerful. It's beautiful. It, it's what some have deemed uh, Mark Galley and Harold Smith as beautiful orthodoxy. It's, just, it's loving. It's truth with love that resonates where even those that are not part of our tribe or evangelical tribe are saying, hey, I like this. So the day of respectfully, don't, you know, throw me out of here now. Uh, But the day of white, angry, pro-life advocates as a collective movement, that day is officially over. We are seeing a multi-ethnic kingdom culture loving movement. And I am honored and blessed to be part of it. Well, we are just so grateful. Um, One of the reasons, Dr. Moore, that I think I've always been so pro-life is because my mom was pregnant with me when she was 16. And um, I remember when I first started to become aware of her story and my story um, and asking, well, did you ever think about having an abortion? And, And her answer was no. But I think it occurred to me as when I was a young girl that I could have easily not been here mm-hmm. had my mother made a different choice. And, mm-hmm. and then I think that's also part of what propels us to become adoption advocates, mm-hmm. both um, kind of collectively and in our own lives. Would you talk a little bit about uh, what adoption has meant to you and how you think it's connected to uh, the pro-life movement and our success in the future? And when when uh, my wife and I had been through years of infertility and miscarriages, 
And when she came to me and said, I feel like the Lord is leading us to adopt, my initial response was to say, you know what, I'm happy to do that later on, but I'd like for us to have, and my words were, our own kids first. Now, those were the words that I, that I, that I said. Now, I would have considered myself to be pro-adoption, pro-orphan, because I was pro-life. I thought adoption was, a, was a, a better option. But I didn't get what adoption really is. The problem was I saw it as a, as a plan B, as some, some, something that's less than real relatedness. And so the Lord had to change my heart on that through Romans 8, through Galatians 4, through Ephesians 1. And then uh, when I came back and said, yes, I think the Lord is leading us to this. And then God led us to a Russian orphanage and we encountered these two little boys, uh, one of whom was born at 27 weeks uh, in, a, in a Russian orphanage with no technology and survived. Um, it, it changed my whole mindset, and I was able to see the Abba cry in Romans and Galatians with a, an entirely different perspective than what I had had before. And, but I found that when I would come home and we would talk to people about the boys, their initial response would always be, well, are they brothers? And I would say, well, they are now. They're our kids. They're brothers. And they would say, yeah, but are they real brothers? And I would say, yeah, they're, they're our real kids. They're really brothers now. <laughs> and then they would say, well, yeah, but you know what I mean. And uh, it was so frustrating to me because behind that was the very same thing that I had expressed at first, which was the idea that, well, if they, at least if they're biologically brothers, then at least they have each other. So the, the adopted relationship was, was something different. And so even now, I get this, the, the questions uh, all the time. Now, which ones are the real ones and which ones are the... Um, and and that, that is fine if you're dealing with secular Darwinists. But we are people who have been adopted into the household of God, where the scripture tells us that Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, we, we don't have natural born kids and adopted kids. Adopted is not an adjective in the New Testament. It's a past tense verb. It tells us how we came into the family, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't define our status after we've come in the family. And so my response is to always say, everyone that I'm feeding is real. <laughs> we have no mannequins here. And, um, and I, I don't refer to these are my adopted kids and these are my biological kids for the same reason my son Jonah came along the more typical way. Uh, he was born uh, three, weeks, three weeks early, but I don't say, here are my kids and our premature son, Jonah. I don't do that. That's part of his story. We're not ashamed, but it doesn't define him. Beautiful. And so I think a lot of people who have been through experiences like that. Good, yeah. Well, and you know what I want to say thank you to you for saying that is a lot of times uh, I became a mom through the blessing of adoption myself. And a lot of times as pro-life people, as gospel people who are so passionate about what you just described, the response back to us can sometimes be, oh, yeah, that's just don't be so sensitive. And that sounds like political correctness. Please hear us. It could be nothing further from that. It goes to the gospel truths that we're talking about here today. And we're just so um, blessed and honored to get to be a part of proclaiming that. So thank you for that. Um, You talk about former orphans and what you just described. Jim, you have a passion and have been a leader as it relates to orphan care in our country. And I'd love if you would just share a little, just a little bit uh, about why it is that you feel so strongly about that. Yeah. Hey, isn't it great, Russell? You taught me more English than I learned in high school. 
passive adverb brew. What, was that? what is that dangling participle? I, I never, you could tell I was playing football. Adjective verb. <laughs> the, uh, you know, for me, I was that orphan kid. Uh, even though I was born in the 60s, uh, in California, my mom was 42 when she had me. And you medically could get an abortion even before Roe v. Wade. Hmm. If you were over 40 and anticipated difficulties with that pregnancy. Mm. And it was my father who actually talked my mother out of aborting me. Mm. So you think about that. And for that reason, now, as you press ahead for me, my life, my childhood was tough. My mom died when I was nine of cancer. Uh, My mom and dad divorced when I was five. She remarried. She dies at nine. I'm in foster care. I get uh, back with my biological father. He dies when I'm 12. Mm. So for the people that would say, you know, it's better for that person not to live because of the environment Mm -hmm. that they're going to be brought into, I I just utterly disagree with that. I lived in that horrible environment. Mm -hmm. But what a beautiful place for the Lord Jesus Christ to come into Mm -hmm. and say, you're my child. Beautiful. And the environment doesn't matter. Uh, That's why I feel like my joy is not dictated by my circumstances. I experienced really bad circumstances. Mm -hmm. But I always had a smile on my face because of Christ. And he can do that with any child, I believe. Mm -hmm. And every child deserves that opportunity to be born again. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, for me, that's where that passion ultimately comes from is what I experienced as as a boy. And so when I got into the role of focus on the family, it dawned on me the math. I started looking at foster care where parental rights had been terminated. We have 100,000 children in this country that are in the foster care system. Does anybody know how many churches we have in the U.S.? Hmm. About 350,000. If every third church would adopt one child out of foster care, and it's rough. It's not easy. easy, There's emotional trauma. There's physical trauma. There's all kinds of trauma. But think if one church out of every three would adopt one child, Mm -hmm. and that whole church come around that child and do what's needed to do to heal that hurt soul. Think of the testimony that would uh, cry out for the church. I've often envisioned the New York Times having a headline saying, Christian Church wipes out waiting adoption list for foster care. You want to change the beat, the vibe of the church in this country? Let's go do it. And so that's what gives me the passion. And, uh, you know, at Focus, Kelly gives great day-to-day leadership for our Wait No More program. We've had over 3,000 families start the adoption process out of foster care. So we've put a dent of 3% into that number. But we've got to do more. And I would love for you to carry that message back to your pastors to lift that up as an opportunity. One of my biggest adversaries in town, the owner of the independent newspaper, John Weiss, terrific guy. He's not a believer, but he wanted to have coffee with me. I'd never met him. So we sat down at a Starbucks to have coffee, and he said to me, I never... I never thought anything that good would come out of focus on the family, which was a great line. And, uh, you know, there's your, there's your chance. You either laugh with that and enjoy the humor of it, or you attack. Mm-hmm. And I just envisioned the Lord laughing with something like that. So I laughed with him. I said, that's great. You just don't know what we do. You know, we did 75,000 counseling calls last year to help families through crisis. He said, I never knew that. I thought you were only political. He goes, I'm going to start writing better articles about you. (laughs) (laughs) And he has. And here's the thing. You know that little scripture tucked away that says, do these good deeds so they might honor your father in heaven? 
Folks, it is that simple. We need to uncork doing the good deeds and doing them with the right heart, the right attitude, so that most people of fair-mindedness would say, I respect that, someone like John Weiss. He's my political adversary, but uh, when we can do these kinds of things in the name of Christ, it brings glory mm-hmm. to God's name, and, and that's what we should be after. Beautiful. Amen. Um, speaking of bringing glory to God as we are tenacious in moving forward, Charmaine, talk about what you see as the most significant strategies from your perspective, legal and legislative, moving forward, and in particular what you see happening with Roe and a, even a possible, uh, whether it's a hollowing out or a reversal of Roe sometime in the future. That's an interesting question, and it's a big question. So let me try to pare it down by focusing a little bit on the Supreme Court case that I mentioned this morning, which is called Whole Women's Health v. Cole. It's based on the omnibus pro-life bill that was passed in Texas two years ago. Um, they'll, they'll, it will be argued in front of the Supreme Court in March, and it is the first time in almost a decade that the Supreme Court has agreed to review Uh, a piece of pro-life legislation. We're really excited about it because part of what I believe is the most effective strategy in concert with the mother-child strategy that I mentioned earlier is to focus on the fact that this is a pro-life country and we do have the majority who agrees with us. And someone mentioned earlier the 81% figure of people who want to see restrictions on abortion. We have one of the most radical abortion regimes in the entire world. There's only four countries around the world that have as radical abortion policies as we do, and it's North Korea, uh, Canada, and China. So, you know, these these are not the good guys that we want to be associated with. Um, Although we love Canadians. Yes, yes, we love Canadians. (laughs) And Chinese and Koreans. It's true. true. Thank you. (laughs) Clarify that. Um, Right. So when when you look at how people, what they really think about abortion, the truth of the matter is sadly going to the point about how we present ourselves and how we talk. People tell pollsters that they agree with us on the substance, but they don't want to label themselves as pro-life. That should be a deep conviction to each one of us to Mm -hmm. really think about how we're presenting our message because the vast majority of Americans do agree with us on the fact that abortion needs to be scaled back dramatically. They agree that it's not, not moral. They agree that it hurts women. These are all messages that are common sense points of agreement. And so this was part of the strategy in putting together the the legislation. Americans United for Life was involved um, with parts of this omnibus legislation that passed. Partly, um, it says that uh, an abortionist has to have an admitting privileges at a local hospital. This is just common sense. If you're going to go in for something that's an invasive surgical procedure, you want your doctor to be able to transfer you to the local hospital if something goes wrong. We can all agree on that. Common sense legislation that says that an abortion clinic should have to meet basic standards. They have to have hallway widths a certain length. I was actually debating the head of NARAL, one of the big pro-abortion uh, groups, on this very topic. And she was just, you know, really coming after me saying Americans United for Life was so outrageous and we were trying to shut down clinics by having these really ridiculous and indefensible regulations passed. And fortunately, the host, it was PBS 
CBS said, well, can you give us an example of one of those ridiculous pieces of regulation? And she said, well, for example, they think hallway widths should be a certain width, and, they, and that's just so ridiculous. Well, here's the truth. Karnamaya Mongar died coming out of Kermit Gosnell's clinic in Philadelphia because when emergency responders came to get her out of his clinic, the hallways were so narrow they had to carry her out on a stretcher as if it was the Civil War. They had a hard time even getting um, the stretcher through, through his hallways. So the next time an abortion advocate tries to put us on defense and say that we're being the ones who are outrageous and ridiculous, we need to come back at them and say, we're talking about common sense areas that people can agree with. And let me, for those of you who, you know, this, this is what I do all day, every day. And even I can sometimes get tired of debating this with people. When I'm living my normal life at home, I don't always lead with what it is that I do. But you get into conversations with people, and time after time after time, what I find is you start a conversation with somebody who doesn't call them, they don't want to call themselves pro-life. They'll even go so far as to say they're pro-choice. I even find this in the media. I don't know if you all do as well. Mm-hmm. But they're not, I'm not pro-life but they agree once you start talking about common sense issues that parental notification, informed consent, um, and that's our way forward is to start talking about and bringing people together where we do agree. I think that's a great point um, as we continue to focus on how and where we move forward. Pastor Sam, talk about the demographics, the changing demographics in our country and how it is that the Hispanic community is going to continue to play, I believe, as you have been uh, such a tremendous leader and others, play a role in really transforming this culture for the cause of life. Shortly before the end of the century, some have Projections range anywhere 2050, 2075, and then some a little bit later, but definitively before the end of the century, this will be a, no longer a, a non-white majority nation. And the Latino influx continues to impact our demographical landscape. Uh, there is a, an emerging, likewise, Asian influx. Together, this demographic, and primarily the Latino, what I alluded to in my, in my keynote address, is very pro-life, very staunchly pro-life. So at, at the end of the day, any concerns as whether or not the advances in our life commitment will begin to dwindle or diminish, uh, that's not what we, for, the forecast is quite the contrary. I think we're going to see even a, a stronger, maybe the term, the phrase pro-life, what, I don't, the, the, the wording of redeeming the term pro-life wouldn't be appropriate. Maybe finding and seeking new nomenclatures and descriptors maybe pro-women, pro-children, pro-imago day, something that, that will speak to this emerging generation. But at the end of the day, you're going to see more individuals committed to life, voting life, electing officials that really reflect the values they hold near and dear. And, and again, you're going to see even in the next 20, 30 years, there's some projections as it pertains to life, even in the urban context. You're looking at New York City, Los Angeles, Dallas, Miami, uh, San Diego, uh, Chicago, even within the urban context, you'll, you'll see shifts taking place as it pertains to demands on behalf of the populace regarding life and the issues of life. So it's not, a, not only at a federal national level, at a local and state level where you will see more advocacy for life on behalf of ethnic, today's ethnic minorities, tomorrow's demographical majority. 
can I? Yes, please. Because I, I want to sketch out some intersection here about what Sam's talking about and, and the issues that are that I feel really passionate about is what I find in working with our friends in the black and the Latino population is these are the women who are being oppressed by the abortion industry. They're being targeted specifically. The clinics are being put in their neighborhoods. They are seen as a profit center for this horrible, horrible industry. And when we as a pro-life movement make the mistake of crafting the woman as the person who that we're in an adversarial relationship with, we hurt ourselves. We fundamentally undermine this, uh, undermine our movement. We, when we start talking about the pain that women are feeling as a result of being targeted by this industry, we create, we create areas of overlap. We, we're able to start a dialogue and to see racial reconciliation because some, so much of the language that we use is is comes across as being as as unintentionally judgmental um, when the experience that they've had of abuse and pain and hurt at the hands of this industry is is breathtaking. But you segue, and Dr. Moore alluded to it in his presentation. That's why it behooves us to, not to create some sort of wall of separation and separate the issue of racism and the issue of abortion. In the African-American Latino communities, we are compelled and convicted to address issues of racial discrimination. Because we are pro-life, we're committed to Christ, but racism as it takes place, be it to that young man in, in a very inappropriate setting where his rights and his dignity and his imago Dei stood violated when he's 35 years of age or as a child in the womb. Mm -hmm. So we serve as advocates in a very comprehensive, holistic manner throughout the spectrum. So we can't be silent. You can't, we can't just be pro-life for that child inside the womb. We have to address issues that impact. When I speak to African-American pastors and they look at me and say, We're, we understand your commitment to life, but why doesn't you know, your pro-life group address issues of poverty and of racism and of education and equality outside the womb? So we have to be very broad and comprehensive. We are so pro-life that we're going to address, we're going to save the child in the womb. We're going to care and love the child the moment the child comes out of the womb. It has to be comprehensive. Absolutely. This, this Dr. Moore, yes. This Charmaine mentioned is, uh, is not just happening geographically with clinics. Uh, there's a, a series that, that uh, appeared on Hulu, the streaming, uh, the streaming service called East Los High, and it's geared toward Hispanic teenagers, and uh, the entire message behind it is one of sexual liberation, combined with abortion rights ideology all the way uh, through it. And then you get to the end, and they have the consultants uh, for this program. It's Planned Parenthood. It's Catholics for Choice. It's other uh, pro-abortion organizations specifically trying to target uh, urban Hispanic teenagers with a message that for them ultimately becomes uh, part of a profit motive. And that's poverty. something we should we should speak to and recognize that sometimes even these popular culture ways of targeting uh, minority communities happen in ways that the rest of uh, that the, that those outside of those communities don't even see or recognize. And even within the communities, there are generational divides where it's not even able to be seen how this micro targeting is happening. Sounds that's, like an infomercial. That's a good yeah, point. It's a, yeah. Well, and I think what yeah, happens, yeah. Dr. Moore, and yeah. people here, we all hear these things, and what happens naturally in our 
immediate reaction is it makes us mad. Is it so upsetting to hear about these things? Jim, I want you to jump in and, and help the person who's watching on the live stream. Those of us who are just going about our daily lives know if we feel this frustration and we want to be part of something, how can regular old people be pro-life and their <laughs> families? Regular old people like that. <laughs> regular old and young people. <laughs> I'm teasing. Uh, you know, first of all, make a friend. Somebody outside your community, I think that's one of the great uh, setbacks for the Christian faith right now, is we're in the Christian ghetto. Not, we're building moats rather than bridges. And uh, I think it's critical that you build a bridge. One of the, the difficulties I've had is I've reached out to uh, the abortion community, to the gay rights community. Is It's not the knives in the chest that hurt the most, it's the knives in your back. You know, what people, Christians, have said of me and again, I, I take it, I'm in a position where those decisions that I make, I know that some will uh, disagree with. But the thing that really uh, hurts me and that I struggle with is they're not sitting in the meeting. They don't know what's going on. And what I have found is that the Holy Spirit's been able to use those meetings to crack the hearts open Beautiful. of these people that I'm meeting with. Yet people will write about me saying he loses his principles when he sits with these people. Imagine what the most is said about the Lord. He wants to be a friend of those sinners. I'm telling you what, you mess with that, you're messing with God's heart, in my opinion, because that is the business that God is Come in. On, he wants you to be at that table with those people. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you what, when you're expressing an attitude, I'd say you're far closer to Caiaphas, who was the chief of the, the Pharisees, than you are to Christ. If you're unwilling to sit with the sinner... Because you're too clean. Mm-hmm. Beware. Because I think God's going to come after you. Ouch. And uh, that's something I wake up with every day thinking about. Because there's two neon signs, and you're the theologians. But when I look at the New Testament, salvation through Christ and Christ alone is one neon sign, the biggest. The other is don't become a Pharisee. Isn't it? And uh, so when I'm looking at that, it's my attitude when I sit with somebody who disagrees with me. And you know what? I, yeah, I'm a football player. I want to smack the person. That's my flesh. That's my flesh. You have to suppress that human response. You have to find, you've got to tap into the Holy Spirit within you. What is the fruit of the Spirit all about? I think the Lord knew so crisply that we were going to struggle with this. And he said, Let's write it down. So the fruit of the Spirit is going to be, if you're in me, this is what you will demonstrate. Love, joy, peace, goodness. I've had Christian leadership say to me, those are effeminate qualities. (laughs) I want to see that person when they pass from this life to the next. And the Lord says, you know, back when you said that uh, about effeminate qualities. We've got to embrace this, everybody. The Lord was specific. It's interesting when you look at the rotten fruit, Galatians 19, 519. After you get through the sexual stuff, it cuts close because it's divisiveness, disunity, envy, strife, Mm -hmm. pride. That's the fruit of the other guy. And I would only say, and I do this for myself, is often. Lord, help me not to be rooted in that fruit, in that vine that produces that kind of fruit. So when you get to that question, Kelly, of how do you, how do, you do it? 
you've got to be tapped into the Lord because your human response is going to be anger to what Sammy was saying. You're going to want to strike back. We're going to want to do everything out of human, the human toolbox. And I'm telling you, the enemy in the world will defeat us if we play with those tools. Mm-hmm. There's one tool that the enemy of our soul cannot compete with, and it's the love of Christ. And from my perspective, from my perspective, we so often fail to pick that tool up out of the toolbox. And I, I would say well that's said. the thing we got to do. Well said, Charmaine. You wanted to jump in I on that. I do want to jump in. Um, I love the fact that you kind of gave me the jumping off point as the only woman on the panel to talk about effeminate qualities. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> this is really dear to my heart, and I didn't have time in my earlier talk to fully flesh out this idea. But one of the reasons I'm so excited that you're hosting Evangelicals for Life is because I am an evangelical, and I grew up in the evangelical community. And one of the things that I feel most passionately about is the church is the single vehicle for creating and defending the dignity that the feminists are looking for. Mm-hmm. And that they, right. we, we have the alternate story of they're saying that we have to have abortion in order to compete on the playing field that men have set out. And this is a whole huge conversation that we don't entirely have time for right now. But wow, this is a challenge to our community to model the dignity of feminine power um, and the complementarity of men and women and showing that women, women in their roles as mothers and as professionals stand before God as, as, as with full and equal dignity to anyone in the church. And that's our role, is to say that, is to hold up that alternate vision of being able to be a woman of power um, in, as we are created in God's image um, in, in a complementary way um, with, our, with our male colleagues and our male brothers in Christ. Yeah, Jim. I, I was going to ask a question. We did that movie Irreplaceable that released in theaters, and there was a line, I, I wish I could attribute it to the person in the film. I just can't come up with her name right now. But she said something so powerful, which I'd love to ask you in that context. She said the, the sexual revolution, the, what we were sold on was it would become sexual freedom, and what we got was abandonment. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That struck me. I mean, when you think about that, what women were – were seeking and what they were sold on and what they actually received in the, the sexual transaction was abandonment. Men that were free to do whatever they wanted to do with no anchor, no connection to the aftermath. That's it exactly. And that's the message that we have as a church is what, what a whole um, sexual relationship looks like, what it can be um, mm-hmm. within the church. You know, it, it's, no, it's no accident that Jesus describes the church and marriage as, as an image for us of our relationship with God. To me, there's no accident that that's where abortion comes and attacks us spiritually. There's such deep roots here to this issue that we don't always grapple with as a church. And um, this ties back into being very careful to, um, to not have a glib answer for women. Uh, I know in a, in a group this size, there are plenty of women who've been where I have been, where you, you find out you're pregnant and as a Christian woman, you're happy, but it's scary. It's really scary. 
How is, how, how is it all going to work out? And there, there, if you haven't lived through that fear, that deep gut-wrenching fear of what your life is going to look like moving forward as a result of a pregnancy, you need to be very, very careful in being glib about what a woman is faced with an abortion decision is thinking. Amen. It's the love of Christ that is always the answer. For more information on the sanctity of human life, visit ERLC.com.